This is Anna, producer at Secure Sessions. We wanted to tell you about our exclusive sponsor and top-tier VPN provider. IPVanish has been a great resource for all of our digital security needs. Now our listeners will have access to great benefits including lightning fast speeds, a secure no-logging policy, easy-to-use apps for all major devices, and much more. Go to IPVanish.com and enter promo code SESSIONS to receive 20% off any plan. Welcome to the Secure Sessions podcast, sponsored by IPVanish. This week, our guest is Yaja Butler, Privacy, Surveillance, and Security Fellow for the Center for Democracy and Technology. Yaja has a long, impressive history of representing digital rights through Georgetown University Law Center and the National Security Law, Law Society. Welcome, Yaja, and thank you so much for speaking, us to, speaking to us today. Thanks so much for having me. It's good to be here. So one of our hot topics here on Secure Sessions is you know, the balance between government security the needs of corporations and individual rights. Um, you know, just diving right into it, uh, how do you see the middle ground uh, negotiated between between those uh, three sets of users? Uh, you know, it's funny. A lot of people talk about a balance or a middle ground, um, but really, all of those things actually end up going hand in hand, especially when it goes to cybersecurity. So. Take the encryption debate, for example. Um, right now, we're seeing government officials conducting criminal investigations, and they want special access to our devices or our communications when they've been encrypted or they can't access it for some reason. The problem with that, though, is that they've been encrypted or there are security features for our safety. So if the government requires them to be capable of giving some sort of special access, they're actually requiring them to be weakened and other more malicious actors will be able to get access too. So in that way, they go hand in hand. Um, for other issues such as um, intelligence surveillance more broadly, I, I think it's really important to remember that without individual rights, there's really nothing left for us to fight for and protect. Um, one of our founding fathers, John Adams, um, actually attributed the spark that led to the American Revolution back to a case that examined the use of British writs of assistance, these generalized warrants where the crowd could just enter any home with no particular specific suspicion and just dig through everything. Um, you know, way back then, we just decided that's not the government that we wanted. Um, we, we are a government of by and for the people. So if we take away that right to be left alone, if we take that away, that right to individual self where the government cannot intrude, the very basic principles of our nation no longer exist. So let's let's talk about basic principles and the evolution of those principles. Uh, since it's rare that I get to talk to a Georgetown J.D., <laughs> um, so let's look at, look at the Fourth Amendment and its evolution. And, you know, we've had lots of problematic attempts to bridge from uh, language that was written in an era when safes existed and information was on paper uh, to uh, try and come up with exactly what the right um, analogy is for encrypted communication, encrypted computers, encrypted phones. It seems like one of those situations where the analogies have all fallen short and we might need to actually, uh, you know, come up with some guidance that refers to the devices we have. Um, any, if you, if you were, if you were granted the ability to, you know, add sentences to the fourth amendment, what do we need to do to it, uh, to make clear what the, what the, uh, appropriate safeguards are for personal security in this era? <laughs> 
Well, I, I think you've touched on uh, one of the things that really frustrates a lot of lawyers and law students in particular, um, because when it when it comes to digital rights, when it comes to tech policy issues, a lot of people try to equate what is happening on the Internet to what is happening in the physical world. And, and that simply can't be done for a lot of reasons. Um, the main reason being that the analogy just doesn't work. It, it, it's two completely different, quote unquote, worlds, so to speak. And, and, and they're very different and, and they need to be treated differently. However, the one thing that that approach gets right is the fact that inadvertently it's focusing on user expectation. It's focusing on a reasonable expectation of privacy, which the Supreme Court has recognized basically since, you know, 1960s and cats. Um, the problem with that is, is that a lot of courts are looking at reasonable expectation of privacy from a very abstract lens based on how technology works versus what average citizens actually expect. So for example, the Fourth Circuit just came out with US v. Graham. It's, it was a case that involves cell site location information. And they concluded that when you have a cell phone on you, your cell phone is constantly sharing information with cell towers. Therefore, you, the user, are voluntarily sharing your location information with a third party. And by law, you don't have an expectation of privacy in that when you give information to someone else. So if you told me a secret, there's nothing stopping me from turning around and telling the police. That's basically how they're viewing this. I don't think anyone in their right mind, though, would really say that that's what users carrying cell phones expect. I don't think that the average user carrying a cell phone knows or understands the fact that they're carrying a tracking device, first of all. Um, but second of all, I don't think they consider their having a cell phone um, being a voluntary share of information with a third party that they're giving up. It's just not realistic. It, it's not how you think of your device. It's not how I think of my device. Um, so, so that way that we've been thinking about the Fourth Amendment uh, definitely has to change, and it's already changing. We saw five Supreme Court justices in the U.S. v. Jones case um, talk about the fact that constant, uh, you know, surveillance and monitoring is extremely invasive, and we have a reasonable expectation of privacy in that. So. We're coming along is, is the short answer to your question, um, but so, we still have a lot of work to do. So we're doing the usual thing, which is building up a, a volume of precedent around the scant language, in, you know, analyzing what the intent was and trying to come up with new guidelines, new doctrines. I want to go back to what you said about, about cell phone location and, and the holdings in that case, because... Just, I want to be absolutely clear to our listeners here that we're not talking about whether or not you have location services enabled on your phone and whether or not you're sharing your location. We're talking about the actual home location registry, which is the, the name for the database that your cellular provider uses to tie phones to towers at any given point in time. It's been held that the contents of that, including the historical contents of that, are effectively... Uh, non-private information which you don't have a right to protect. That's exactly right. And the problem with that is, is that that means that you, the user, are not actively making a choice to give that information up. Your device does that because that's how the device works. We wouldn't be able to make phone calls if it weren't for that. Um, so the problem with that is, is that they're using doctrine from cases such as the, you know, Smith v. Maryland. They're using the Miller case. Um, those are cases where users actively dialed numbers 
Um, and, and their phone company keeps records of those numbers dialed to or from your device um, also because that's how your device works. But at least in that situation, you know what you're doing and you know that you're volunteering information. Whereas with location, you really don't. Um, so, so again, back to your original question, that's what makes this problem so fascinating because it does rely on the technology and it does rely on how it works. Um, but it also relies on how users believe it works. Um, and, and, and those are important considerations that have to go into any analysis of whether or not there's a reasonable expectation of privacy. So we've crossed the bridge now to metadata, where we're talking about not just the, not just the conversations that you might have had with other folks, but the telephone numbers that you've communicated with. Uh, as well as potentially internet addresses your traffic has gone to, et cetera. So I personally feel, as we've looked at uh, some of the Snowden revelations and how, you know, it looks like NSA was basically vacuuming up every packet there was and mm. then keeping an index to those packets and making some attempts to secure the index uh, against unauthorized or unsanctioned access. Though, of course, there were plenty of accesses just due to f human foibles and... and uh, mm human misuse. Um, so is there any sort of evolving handling of metadata versus the data itself? Are we, are we starting to see, are we starting to see, uh, you know, real rules there, uh, that apply to police or to courts or investigators that are holding metadata differently from, from, uh, actual contents of conversations or interactions? Well, I think the answer to that is twofold. Um, first of all, metadata is not encrypted. So there's really not much that you, the user, can do to cover your tracks in that sense. Um, so what we in C at CDT have been trying to do is we've been trying to help people, um, by people we mean law enforcement, judges, policymakers, understand that, yes, this information is available, but it's also extremely sensitive when you combine it all together. Um, it's incredibly revealing um, whom you call, how often, for how long, and when, um, where you go, what websites you visit. Um, I would actually argue that, that such information, when taken together, is more invasive and revealing than content, particularly because, um, as we say in the privacy community, content lies or it's capable of lying, whereas metadata is not. Um, so I think what we're seeing here in, in terms of the way people are treating metadata um, is both the understanding that it's available and that it's all around and it's very uh, valuable, um, but also a increasing understanding that, that this is so sensitive and, and it can reveal far more about an individual and what they're up to uh, than most content can. Um, so it, it's definitely a new way of looking at data. It's not something that I think people used to care about. But as you said, with the Snowden revelations back in 2013, all of a sudden, uh, more and more people started writing about metadata and its capabilities. And, and I do think that people sat up and started to listen. I think uh, several years ago, someone challenged Bruce Schneier in his blog about whether or not metadata created a meaningful picture. Uh, sort of proposed the idea that, you know, there's too much noise in this, you can't really tell what's going on. And if I remember correctly, his response was, well, let's look at the metadata for the morning of the first Sunday in May. And now, just from the metadata, we know who everybody's mother is. And we can, con we can construct instantaneously 
you know, based on a scant few hours of data, um, you know, effectively a, a family tree for, for everyone in the country. These are all the people that are related. And we, we know so because traditionally, you know, they all call each other on this day. Right, exactly. And, you know, I think that it's both scary, but it's also encouraging in the sense that we have a new source of data that can be used as opposed to content, which is becoming increasingly encrypted by nature. Um, So that's a good thing. That's a good tool for law enforcement to use as an alternative. There are definitely puzzle pieces out there that can be put together. However, we we have to caution that this data is very sensitive and revealing, and and it needs to be afforded more respect um, than I think it has been in the past before people really understood its value. So let's talk about um, the right to privacy in the digital age, which I think is part of your charter at CDT. Um, We've we've talked about medical data. We've talked about, uh, you know, communications metadata. We talked about communications contents. What are the, um, how, how do you, at CDT, how do you all think of the portfolio of information that we all have? You know, clearly different, different information deserves different protections. Um, other than medical data, what is, what is the most sensitive? What is the most protected data that's universally viewed as protected versus uh, what is viewed as out there and not worth protecting? You know, I would argue that there isn't a certain type of information that is uniquely more sensitive. I would argue that there are things that can be combined that make them combined more sensitive than perhaps singular sets of data. Um, and, and I think that's key. I think once you put information together, you can create a full, very intimate picture of someone or some company or some country or town. Um and, and that's what makes us so passionate about these issues that we work with. The, the digital age makes things very exciting. The possibilities are endless when you can combine all of this data, when you can synthesize it, link it, and figure out what it means. But it also makes things complicated because we've never been able to do that before. So here at CDT, the goal is to make sure that despite these new capabilities, our fundamental inalienable rights are nevertheless preserved, even in this environment. So that means ensuring above all else that our devices, our apps, our other means of electronic communications, that they all work for the user, first and foremost. They work to keep us safe. They work to enable us to express ourselves freely. And they work to enable us to control the fate of our data and control what is out there about us. Um, so, so it's tricky, but at, at the end of the day, it really is about preserving the rights that we've always had only in a new era of endless information and endless connectivity. So there's really two sets of people that were, cons- or two sets of organizations we're concerned about in relation to our own data. We've got, we've got interactions with government mm-hmm. and then we've got interactions with corporations. And, and so you all have dived into the debate about, uh, uh, as part of new rulemaking for the Federal Communications Commission about uh, handling of data by corporations. Uh, care to share any of your work there? Uh, well, I haven't worked personally on our um, FCC filings, but but I will say that it, whether or not there's one 
quote-unquote foe to privacy um, is a tough question to answer because really it's more of a combination of everything. Um, We have to look out for the government and what it's doing to surveil us, oftentimes without us knowing. Um, We do have to look at corporations to see how they're using our information. Um, More often than not, it, it seems like they're using our information with the possibility of discovery and new inventions and tools and things for us to use in mind. Um, But they may also inadvertently do so in a way that we may not like, so we have to keep an eye on it. So uh, really, when we look at these things, there's really no one big threat to digital rights in terms of a single entity. Um, Honestly, I think the biggest threat that we're facing right now is, is the idea that somehow digital is different and therefore the rights that you used to enjoy before digital no longer exist. Um, when we do these FCC filings, when we um, you know, file comments before the Senate or the House, if they're going to have a hearing on surveillance, um, that's definitely the big threat of an idea that we're trying to fight against. Oh, so, the, so there's this boogeyman idea that uh, sort of we all voluntarily gave this up and so we shouldn't expect to have any controls over it? Well, right, because a lot of times we don't even know what we're giving up. <laughs> Um, A a lot of times, um, well, not only do we not know what we're giving up, but we don't know what inferences are made with the information that we do give up. Um, I just came out of a uh, presentation where a lot of people were talking about, you know, making inferences about your race, for example, based on your browsing history. That's something that you certainly wouldn't expect to happen, but it happens all the time. Um, So it's a lot of consideration has to go towards putting the user back in control and, and making the user aware of what is happening with their data so that their data can be used the way they want it to be used because it is ultimately theirs. I'm, I'm keenly interested in the old world of data collection as well where we have uh, you know, the various credit reporting agencies and the, uh, the mailing list companies uh, who have, you know, they have pretty seamlessly bridged into this world and begun adding tens, hundreds of columns of data about individual users. And yet, uh, I can make a Freedom of Information Act request to find out what data governments are holding about me and potentially get an answer, depending on their mood. But uh, I have no ability to talk to Equifax uh, other than about my actual credit rating to find Mm -hmm. out um, what other demographic information they've collected about me and are selling and are sharing or with whom, or to check the accuracy of any of that data. And I think anyone who's, anyone who's had the experience of, uh, you know, one, one bit of banter on Facebook changing the ads uh, very quickly uh, to, to reflect what your current interest might be understands uh, just, just what a scary proposition that might be. Has your, so has your personal digital security changed since you started uh, analyzing these issues? Do you feel like, are you, are you frightening yourself and, you know, turning into a digital hermit? Or, uh, you know, <laughs> do you find yourself stepping back in your normal life interactions and thinking about what the trail is that you're leaving? Well, I don't like to think that I'm frightening myself necessarily, but but I do think that I'm definitely wiser since I started at CDT. Um, I interned at CDT a couple years ago, um, and, and that's how I ended up back here. And I remember during that internship noticing that everybody had privacy covers over their webcams. And I thought, you know, that's just so silly. Talk about paranoid. 
Um, <laughs> but the more that I learned about it and the more that I learned the capabilities of wirelessly, you know, or, or remotely turning on someone's webcam, sure enough, now I'm sitting here with a cover right over my camera. And I, I'm also aware of simple things that everybody should be doing um, with their data um, when they're in public or, or when they're, you know, traveling abroad or they're on a public Wi-Fi. Um, one of the simple things that people should be doing that I do now is have a privacy screen on your laptop. It's really amazing how often I'm on the metro or I'm on an airplane and I can see right over someone's shoulder, clear as day, a document that has privileged and confidential on the top of it in bold caps letters. Uh, and, and I can see it right there because they're doing nothing to protect it. I, I think a lot of people have tunnel vision when they're using their laptops in public and they they think that they're the only ones that can see it, and that's obviously not true. This is uh, one of the reasons we are a VPN provider. That right. uh, we, <laughs> you know, we think that uh, an enormous amount of sensitive communications still happens in the clear. Um, I analyzed the network uh, of a hotel I was staying at several years ago, and uh, I, in addition to the fact that I saw many email addresses and usernames go flying by. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things I noticed was if you if you look at these IP addresses, many of them went on to access adult content from their hotel rooms. Now, I have your email address, I have your email password, and I have what your viewing preferences are. And, you know, that's sort of a, in terms of things that you wouldn't want associated with your professional reputation, that's, uh, you know, I just thought... That, that's part of the reason we got into the VPN space was just to say people are leaking colossal amounts of uh, information that they might not want public. And so we've got to encourage people to use these features that in many cases their computers already have, uh, but they need, uh, they need a sensitive repository for their browsing information. That's exactly right. And, and I think their education is key. Um, our staff technologist, Greg Norsey, has been doing excellent work on helping people stay safe, particularly when they're traveling. Um, and we presented this really fun, easy-to-use, informative quiz um, at the South by Southwest conference. Um, and the quiz just offered, you know, very basic, simple advice um, where we presented a question of, you know, if you're in an airport and you find, a, you know, a USB flash drive, do you use it? <laughs> and, 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 you know, the answer would always point you in the direction of, you know, where you should go to avoid situations that, um, that might make you less safe when you're traveling in particular, but also just in your everyday life. Um, it, it's all about cyber hygiene. And I think the more people know about it, the safer we're going to be, not only as individuals, but as a nation as a whole. Yeah, I see a phenomenal amount of fake Wi-Fi access points when I'm traveling. Oh, um, yeah. Of course, very carefully named to attract people. I've also seen a number of people in bars in airports uh, running Wi-Fi booster antennas and seeing what lands they can get access to while they're in a government facility, which seems extremely unwise to me, but um, <laughs> there you have it. That it's uh, We have this sort of fluid view of computer security sometimes due to the Berkeley heritage of the internet. Um, so that idea that, well, look, everyone on every side is now testing the limits of other people's systems, potentially including hacking back or some of the uh, procedural changes uh, that have been made for uh, federal investigations about um, 
you know, what, uh, what systems are subject to compromise and how broad a uh, request for access needs to be. Um, we actually see this idea of hacking back spreading. Um, mm. uh, any, any commentary there about, about Rule 41 and, and large investigations or about, uh, or about uh, the, the broader scope of penetration testing and, and security flaw exposition? Sure. Well, I'll talk about hacking back first, because um, back when I was at Georgetown, um, NSLS uh, actually did um, an entire event on the concept. We featured some people from the DOJ, some people from um, uh, cybersecurity firms talking about what it is, how it works, and whether or not it's a good idea. Um, the consensus thus far is, is that it's an incredibly dangerous concept. The ability to allow yourself to... Um, not only protect your data defensively, but go on the offense and possibly strike back at a hacker. Um, the problem of that is, of course, attribution. Um, we're just not there yet when it comes to being able to adequately determine or accurately determine, rather, who is attacking us. So if you hack back, if you strike back, you're, you may actually end up hitting someone innocent. It could be just an average innocent user, or it, it could be a hospital network, um, which could obviously have catastrophic events um, uh, that follow once you strike that network. So, so that's something that we're definitely concerned with. And, and relatedly, we're also concerned with the new Rule 41 changes. Um, recently, the Supreme Court um, just approved changes to this obscure rule in the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure that has to do with venue. Um, but even though it has to do with venue, it has astounding substantive consequences. So under the old Rule 41, a judge with the authority in a given district um, could only issue warrants for search and seizures of property when that property was located in that district. So now, in, in response to the fact that there are botnet, botnet attacks happening left and right, there are computers that are concealing their location. Um, changes to Rule 41 have been made, um, and, and one of those changes is that a judge can authorize the search and seizure um, of data um, when the physical location of information is unknown, it's concealed through technological means, um, or when a botnet is involved, and, and I think it has to be five or more districts um, have computers that are affected. This is incredibly dangerous because it could potentially allow the government to remotely hack any computer in the world. Because if you don't know where it is, it could be, you know, you're investigating in Virginia, but the computer is in Maryland, or you could be investigating in Virginia and the computer belongs to the Iranian government. Um, it's, it's, it's really astounding, um, the severe level of consequences that can come from allowing the government to uh, remotely hack these devices when they don't know where they are. Um, unfortunately, CDT has been working hard to try to stop these changes from happening, but now that the Supreme Court has approved them, Congress really only has until December 1st to stop it. Um, they may and, be distracted during that time. They might be distracted just a little bit, um, and, and, and even during normal times. It, it's incredibly difficult to get both houses of Congress to pass and the president to sign legislation in such a short amount of time. But the good news is they're trying. Um, the Stopping Mass Hacking Act has been introduced. It's been co-sponsored by a wide range of Democrats and Republicans alike. We have Senators Ron Wyden and Rand Paul and you know Tammy Baldwin on the Senate side. And, and we also have Ted Poe and Blake Farenthold and, and John Conyers on the House side. 
Um, and they're actually working really hard to make sure that this thing doesn't happen. Um, but even if they fail, uh, our position at CDT has been that it will ultimately fall on the Department of Justice to make sure that this new capability is used responsibly and, and carefully and transparently. Um, you know, it, it, it may allow um, uh, for a lot more, uh, I guess, efficiency when it comes to searches. But, but we really hope that officials that will be conducting the search will realize just how serious the consequences could be. Well, one of the themes that we try to cover here is you know, pragmatic security and how the you know the interaction between technology and civilization, the pendulum often swings way too far in one direction and way too far in the other a few times before it settles back. There, this this rule didn't come out of nowhere. There was a legitimate problem in investigations where when you when you have the when you have the jurisdiction of the offender and the client and the server and potentially multiple servers, it becomes very difficult to say where the crime happened. I understand that that you know, wasn't playing well, but at the same time, swinging all the way to the other end of saying, well, one warrant can therefore apply to any computer anywhere, you know, is clearly, uh, clearly there, we need a solution that, uh, that splits the difference a little more effectively, perhaps. Yeah, that's right. But but I believe that this solution should be come up with in the legislature rather than an advisory council for the judicial court system. Um, this is an incredibly uh, mundane procedural way to enable vastly expansive substantive powers for our law enforcement officials. Um, so our position has been and continues to be that that's such a serious change in the way we do things, which, you know, as you said, there's a reason for change. There are definitely unique new challenges posed by, uh, you know, location concealing technologies. Um, but those things should be debated by Congress, our, our elected lawmaking officials. So that ultimately the solution that, you know, they come up with is going to be carefully thought through with an adequate amount of debate and preparation and consideration of what the consequences could be. And um, that's not what's happening here. Well, here's hoping for uh, a, a new Congress that can meaningfully debate technological issues. Yaja, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today, and we appreciate the efforts that both you and the rest of the CDT make to fight for user security and digital rights. Um, it's uh, it's a pleasure speaking with you, and uh, we hope to speak with you again as as uh, events and issues transform and continue. Um, thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed being here. Please be sure to download Secure Sessions on iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, or of course at ipvanish.com/podcasts. See you next week. Be sure to tune in next week on Secure Sessions when our guest is David Christopher, Communications Manager for Open Media Canada. Josh and David will discuss the impact of internet censorship outside of the U.S. and how our laws hit home worldwide. We'll see you next week, thanks to IP Vanish.